The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Hello, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, what are we going to talk about today? Of course, it's more on Brexit it is. and how to get uh, that Brexit deal. So according to James Slack, briefing journalists this morning saying that the UK's Stephen Barclay will be meeting the EU's Verhofstadt to discuss the Brexit deal on Thursday. Again, repeating this idea, or we've heard uh, in recent days, again, the idea that the Brexit trade trade deal is going to be secured by the end of the year. Yeah, we've also heard from higher up the food chain, the European Commission chief Ursula von der Leyen, saying that the EU is going to closely monitor customs operations on the Irish border after Brexit. She says that's to ensure rules being followed clearly. Some critics have argued that even with a free trade deal, checks will be needed to confirm goods going to Northern Ireland from the rest of Britain uh, and to make sure that they meet the bloc's criteria. And that's something where she's slightly at odds with the Prime Minister. Uh, she met with the Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, yesterday. Uh, she laid out challenges of hammering out such a trade deal in just eight months. There's a lot because uh, the United Kingdom knows the closer they want to be to the single market, the more, they, of course, they have to align to the rules of the single market. The less they want to abide to the rules of the single market, the more distant they will be. So I think uh, this is now the time to figure out the room that we will have between the UK and the European Union's single market. It's mainly their choice, um, but with every choice comes a trade-off. So that was Ursula von der Leyen there speaking. Uh, so look, uh, the issue of the Brexit trade negotiation, uh, obviously significant for the government, but what happens to those parties that were very pro-EU in this post-Brexit world? Our next guest joining us now is Owen Thompson, who is the SNP MP for Midlothian. A very warm welcome to the programme, Owen. Thank you so much for joining us. And I guess this is my, my top question for the Scottish National Party. What do you do now post-Brexit? Well, I think, uh, thanks for having me. I think our position's been very clear and certainly it's been one of the clearest of all parties throughout the whole Brexit process that we've been fundamentally opposed to the position taken by the UK government to remove Scotland from the EU against the express wishes of every council area in Scotland who all voted to remain. Options were put on the table for a, a compromise which the UK government simply ignored and paid no attention to and the result of that has been, as we've seen, Scotland again voting overwhelmingly for SNP members to take seats here 
to make the case for us in Scotland to have a chance to have our own say on what future we want to have. Mm. The issue there, though, Owen, as you well know, is that that was rejected by Westminster. What is your next move going to be? Yeah, the the current position of the Prime Minister is simply unsustainable. Um, David Cameron tried similar in 2012 when there was first in a a request at that time um, and eventually had to recognise that we actually live in a democracy Mm -hmm. and the rights of people to have a say in their future are a fundamental right and Mm. it's possible for them to continue to reject that. Yeah, but hang on, with an 80-seat majority in an election literally a month ago, uh, there's plenty of breathing room for Mr Johnson to continue to essentially ignore the requests from north of the border. He he may have an 80-seat majority overall, but he lost more than half his seat in Scotland and it's absolutely inconceivable that he could continue to ignore the position that was taken, especially when the Conservative campaign in Scotland said that a vote for any candidate for the SNP was a vote for another referendum. So even in their own terms, the people of Scotland have made their position very clear that another vote has to happen. Well, Owen, what about some of the language we've heard around this? Mike Russell, Holyrood's Constitutional Relations Secretary, said Boris Johnson's been acting like a dictator. Is that something you'd stand by? Absolutely. I think in the current position he's taking is denying democracy. All parties agreed to the Smith Commission, which set no timeline of when another referendum could have. be had, simply stating that that would happen in the event of the Scottish people voting to have another referendum, which they have now done on multiple occasions. I mean, of the SNP, we have won the Westminster elections in 2015, 2017, 2019. We won the Scottish Parliament elections in 2016 and the European elections in Scotland this year in 2019. So to say that there's not been a position taken by the people of Scotland to support the position that we have, it's just inconceivable to hold that position. Okay. Do you go it alone then? Do you hold IndyRef2 without the consent of Westminster? Well, obviously the Prime Minister has sent a response and the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon set out some initial comments on that and I think a fuller response and next steps, uh, we're expecting to see something on that later this month. So uh, on that point, I would probably say uh, watch this space. Very interesting. Um, what about these comments from Lisa and Andy? If we're talking about referendums without consent, she referred to Catalonia as an example of how to deal with what she calls divisive nationalism. How do you respond to that? I think that was a, a very badly misjudged comment and comparison made by Lisa and Andy. I think a lot of people here certainly hold Lisa in a very high regard, but I think the position she's looking at there and the approach taken by the Spanish government to what was essentially a peaceful referendum by the people in Catalonia uh, and the heavy-handed approach, it's quite incredible. And to suggest in any way that the approach taken by the SNP has been anything but peaceful, progressive and democratic is quite unbelievable. Hmm, okay. Uh, but would you, so how do you mean, are you critical of the, of Madrid's response then to, to Catalonia? Do you lay the blame at their door? I think that the approach taken by the police and the very hand, heavy-handed approach they've taken is unacceptable. I mean, I think why Europe have been able to stand by and simply say as little as they have on that is very disappointing. Uh, and certainly that's not something that we would ever imagine seeing here. 
Uh, okay, disappointing, but then surely there can be, um, you know, little hope or expectation that the EU would then step in and support Scotland in in its move for independence, given how uh, little support was given to Catalonia. Do you not? Uh, would that not worry you? No, I think it's been very clear that throughout the process of the referendum that Scotland's had and the progress since towards holding another. Um, we, the SNP and the Scottish Government and the Scottish Parliament as a whole, every possible step has been taken to follow the processes laid down in law. And as such, I think that when the referendum does happen and when we have the result that will come from that, it will be very difficult for Europe not to support us. And what sort of evidence have you seen so far of that support? Oh, I mean, I think we regularly, as you would expect, have conversations with people on the doorsteps and even over the the last campaign in December there, the number of people who had previously been fundamentally opposed to independence were now at least moving towards being open-minded and many completely yeah. changing their minds. No, no, but but there is definitely a significant shift. What about in Brussels, though? Yeah. In Brussels? Um, well, I mean, there are obviously ongoing discussions taking place at varying levels between... Uh, all sorts of people, and I think, certainly from what we hear, that the, the views towards Scotland, and particularly the fact that we voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union, and those wishes being simply ignored by this government that are denying democracy in Scotland, that position, I think, is gaining much favour with many countries in Europe who we would see coming to our aid. Hmm, interesting. So you see more support perhaps for Scottish independence, possible membership in the EU from Brussels than Catalonia got. Um, on to a couple of other issues, just very briefly, though, Owen, whilst I have you uh, on the line. Flyby, do you think that the government made the right decision to support Flyby, obviously the regional airline? I mention this because they have links to Inverness. You know, it's the regional airline that, you know, is touted as um, being there for the nations and regions and far-flung places to, to make transport links better. Do you think it was the right move, though, to, to, to have government support for this uh, company? I think it's always important to make sure that all issues are considered when looking at something like this uh, and whether it could have been avoidable in the first place. Obviously, we can't have a situation where communities are cut off because of bad decisions by a, a business. So um, I think I'm not entirely convinced the approach being taken by the government is absolutely right, but something certainly had to be done. And very quickly, the Extinction Rebellion protesting at Shell's Aberdeen headquarters. Is Scotland as a country doing enough for the environment? Big source of oil and gas? Certainly a big source of oil and gas, but our manifesto very clearly laid out our progress towards our future where we weren't um, so reliant on those jobs and to divest from that industry and creating new jobs that were uh, supporting our moves towards a greener economy. Uh, Scotland's leading the way uh, on climate change in these islands and it's encouraging that the UK government are eventually catching up and starting to make progress in the way that we have. Um, but we'll continue to lead that way. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. I've got this one. It's a long read on the Bloomberg system. You can read it online as well from our own Ian Wishart, a regular on this programme based over in Brussels. Uh, It's called uh, The European Union is going to miss the UK when it's gone. Uh, And it starts with the 2007 signing of the Lisbon Treaty. Gordon Brown deliberately late to the ceremony to avoid TV pictures of celebrating with other European leaders. So even then, very cautious of the optics. And overall, it asks the question, Where did it all go wrong? Where did Britain and the EU start to fall out? And it charts the rise of Euroscepticism despite strong UK involvement with the EU. It talks about Roy Jenkins, uh, who became the European Commission president in Mm -hmm. 77, Arthur Cofield, uh, who was a commissioner, and their architecture, really, of the monetary union and the single market, these fundamental principles of the EU Mm -hmm. that had a British hand in their creation. No, exactly. I mean, it's a beautiful piece. It's Mm. really historic. It It puts everything into context. Uh, and also what is very interesting of course is that now in Brussels there's this decision about exactly how to say goodbye to the British MEPs who are still there you know party celebration uh, you know sombre drinks what should uh, that process look like and other things like operating language do you dump English and then what does that do to the Irish yeah I know that's uh, that's the more serious thing than the drinks party isn't it Uh, look uh, one other piece that I thought was really fascinating again a nice in-depth piece very chunky from the Financial Times about Dominic Cummings. Uh, The title Cummings has done Brexit. Now he plans to reinvent politics. It's by George Parker. So he uh, got uh, Brexit done for Britain, leaving all the details uh, to be delivered by others. But uh, Parker talking about the 48-year-old now moving on to the new agenda that we have heard a lot about, obviously, remaking the civil service, putting money into Britain's, quote, left behind regions, and then turning Britain into a leading centre for science and so on. So it, it was a fairly positive spin on what I've seen in a lot of newspapers as being, you know, trying to dismantle um, the the civil service, you know, which has had a lot of pushback from various people. Yeah, a really nice colour in it at various points as well. It talks about his relationship with David Cameron, how he got passed mm-hmm. over for a position there. His wife as well, who in that Channel 4 drama was portrayed as a very sweet character, others saying <laughs> that maybe she is the, the more manipulative of the two. Uh, but yeah, another very good long read in the Financial Times there. And then, of course, this Labour poll, a new uh, poll of Labour leadership candidates has put out Rebecca Long-Bailey ahead. Salvation found she'd win 42% of the first preference votes. Keir Starmer would come second with 37% and that that translates into a knife-edge final runoff putting Long-Bailey on 51% against Starmer's 49%. Obviously, the banter outcome is 52-48, but we couldn't be that lucky. But what's really interesting, if you break this down, after the first and the second, Long Bailey and Starmer, there's a huge rift. Phillips, Jess Phillips, on 9%, and the rest follow. Look, there are two horses in this race, Yes, that's really how it's looking. Um, But it's also first choice, second choice, it all gets very murky. Um, But uh, it is an interesting poll, nonetheless. Uh, And really, it's a good kind of launching off point for Mm. our next conversation. Joining us uh, today is Marie uh, van der who is the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, an organisation hello, that represents uh, the British Jewish community. Welcome to the programme, Marie. Thank you for speaking to us. Um, Look, there has been so much discussed around anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So I'm very interested to hear your views on the crop of Labour leadership contenders. Has any of them, Marie, convinced you and uh, the Jewish community that you represent that they can effectively deal with anti-Semitism? Semitism. I have to say um, that the Jewish community has suffered for four years as a result of Labour's uh, leadership. And of course, the vast majority of Jews have lost confidence in the Labour Party. And any new leader has got a huge job 
to restore the faith that Jews have had historically in the party. And the new leader, whoever it is, has got an opportunity to draw a line under this by uh, implementing, not just saying they will implement, um, our uh, 10 pledges, which give the party a route to navigate its way uh-huh. with the anti-Semitism. But the question of who is and who do we prefer to be the next Labour leader, that has to be a question for Labour Party yeah. uh, members because it's not our job to advocate for one person over another. And we have to represent the Jewish community okay. um, to put forward those, those concerns. OK, so you're not endorsing one candidate or another. Definitely not. But look, is it enough for the new candidates to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism in full, which was one of the sticking points with, um, with uh, Mr Johnson? Uh, obviously, this is the working definition of what anti-Semitism constitutes, um, a, a big uh, issue with Jeremy Corbyn. Is it enough that the new candidates have adopted that in full, which they all have? No, it's certainly not enough. We've got 10 pledges, and that's only part of uh, the issues that were put to the Labour Party in my letter to them of the 19th of um, July 2019. The 10 pledges are a minimum, and we've also got the Equality and Human Rights Commission finding uh, to also be uh, implemented, whatever the findings are when that comes out in the next few months. So that certainly alone is not enough, and it's not enough to tackle the culture of anti-Semitism, which I think is going to take at least 10 years to root out. It's very, very ingrained because Labour has become a home for anti-Semites and anti-Semitism. So how deep does it run exactly, Marie? Is this within Corbynism or is this in the now in the roots of the Labour Party? It's right in the roots of the Labour Party. And you might have looked at the reaction in the Labour Party um, to the 10 pledges mm. because the, the hard left of the Labour Party are now attacking Uh, the Board of Deputies, uh, making out the Board of Deputies as a Tory organisation, which of course it's not. We don't endorse any political party. And there now appear to be a number of conflicts going on between uh, various elements uh, in the party. But I'm pleased to say that all the prospective leaders have endorsed the 10 pledges and it's up to them not to walk the talk, but to show the action. Well, I suppose um, perhaps part of um, the, the criticism is around the fact that Britain's chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, took that very unusual step of intervening ahead of the December general election, issuing a very scathing rebuke of Mr Corbyn, saying that he was unfit for high office, a new poison having taken hold in the Labour Party, saying that it was basically a battle for the soul of the nation. So was that intervention justified? Absolutely. I mean, it's unprecedented, as you've just said, uh, anti-Semitism and racism. And can I say all forms of racism and left wing or right wing uh, racism and all forms of extremism are totally unacceptable. But for anti-Semitism to have entered the mainstream opposition party from the fringes of society is absolutely alarming. And what starts with the Jews doesn't end with the Jews. We must all make sure that this is rooted out and that bigotry and prejudice is a thing of the past. Uh, so how concerned are you then about issues in other parties as well? Uh, Baroness Varsi is, is one uh, outspoken critic of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, for example. We, we issue statements if you look through uh, what, we, what we do. We are, con- we are very concerned in all parties because we're at a time of uh, populism, uh, extremist politics, polarisations of views. Uh, that there shouldn't be any prejudice in any parties 
And in relation to the Conservative Party, we've also pointed out a number of concerns, but I'm afraid none of them equate to the absolute uh, infiltration and infestation of anti-Semitism and racism that has taken hold of the Labour Party. But no other party will be neglected. We will advocate uh, equally. We've also expressed concerns internationally, for example, about the treatment of Jews uh, in Hungary. Mm. So we, we will be standing up for Jews wherever they are, and we will be standing with other minority uh, groups uh, and faiths against prejudice. Marie van der Zyl, the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Um, one, uh, one question, though, that I will put to you. Can anyone hold a view that opposes the existence of the state of Israel without being considered anti-Semitic? The fact is there is nothing wrong with criticism of Israel, similar to criticism aimed at the government of any other country. But what we've experienced has gone way beyond this. We've had Israel being likened to the Nazi regime, which exterminated six million Jews. And we've had classic anti-Semitic tropes where the word Jew has been changed to the word Zionist to avoid allegations of anti-Semitism. And more, we've seen Jewish MPs and party members being abused and hounded away from their local parties. And there is a vile outpouring of anti-Jewish racism aimed at us on social media. Mm. And this is double standards uh, for Israel, as as I've just said. And there's nothing wrong with a criticism of Israel similar to criticism aimed at the government of any other country. And Marie, you touched on Hungary briefly, and indeed this is uh, something that really has affected people all over Europe. Uh, We've had anti-Semitic attacks uh, in many places. Mm. Why do you think this is on the rise? I can't answer why there's an increase in nationalistic, xenophobic feeling. I don't know. It's the way the world is. There are also concerns um, in the US in relation to um, the Democrats. It's concerns the world over. People are concerned about all political parties, but especially uh, places places like Hungary. There there are those uh, concerns. It comes mm. comes down to to the government leaders um, set, setting examples. But when in Hungary, for example, uh, there are anti-Semitic tropes uh, levered at. Um, George Soros, you know, that, that becomes very, very concerning. Then you've got issues of Holocaust revisionism. And um, there was also an issue in Hungary mm. about the closure of um, a Jewish community um, center. Hungary does have a good relationship with Israel, but that hasn't detracted from uh, prejudice and uh, feelings of uh, alarm. M- Marie, just one, on the ground. Marie, just one last question, very briefly. What would you hope to see from the new crop of leadership contenders, or indeed whoever wins that election, Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey, clearly in the lead? What would you want them to do day one to rectify this issue, very briefly? I want them to get on with reinforcing our 10 pledges, making sure that we're going to see action, not words. So I want to see them implemented, and I want a timescale from them. I want them to make it clear that this is going to happen. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cutter economic forum.com